This episode of World Changing Ideas is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. I'm Ruth Reeder, and you're listening to Fast Break, a look at some of the most innovative ideas that bring about social change. This week, we'll hear how the election results might affect the laws of the internet, and then find out what you can do to avoid spam and protect your privacy. This is your Fast Break. Under the incoming administration of President-elect Joe Biden, many are expecting there could be some major policy shifts, including in the tech industry. Outgoing President Donald Trump has spoken about wanting to change a provision of the Communications Decency Act that protects websites, including Facebook and Twitter, from getting sued for content published by third parties. Supporters of Section 230 hail it as one of the most important laws protecting internet speech, while others think it gives corporations too much control over what gets published. In September, the Department of Justice under Attorney General William Barr issued proposed reforms that would potentially weaken those protections. Here to talk about Section 230 is Pavan Malhotra, a litigator who counsels technology companies and entrepreneurs about intellectual property and business disputes. Welcome to the show, Pavan. Nice to be here, Ruth. I'm so glad you could join me. So the first thing I want to talk about is what is Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act? So Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act is a law that went into effect back in 1996. What the law was intended to do originally was to provide protection to companies in the early days of the internet. At that time, the internet was was this new thing, and Congress wanted to give protection to companies and platforms that were occupying this new space. And one of the ways they tried to do that was to give them some legal protection in the event somebody wanted to sue them for their decision to permit content on their platform or for their decision to remove content from their platform. And part of the idea was You have this new thing called the internet, and there was a desire to encourage companies to set up shop on it. But companies were worried that if they were responsible for all of the things people said on their platforms, they would have so much legal liability that they wouldn't be able to operate. And so Congress stepped in back in 1996 and created this law. There's two primary provisions. The first provision essentially says If you're an interactive computer service provider, if you're an internet platform, we will not hold you liable or treat you as the publisher or speaker of content that comes from some third party. The second protection it offers is if you are an internet service provider or internet platform and you decide to remove content because you find it excessively violent, objectionable, or problematic in some other way, So long as you're removing content in good faith, you also will not be liable for doing that. And to a large extent, uh, the law remains the same today. So the Justice Department leaves much of the law intact, it seems. However, something important does change. The law holds that no internet site is held accountable as a publisher or speaker for the content on its platform. However, under this new proposal, there's an exception to that, and it is, quote, that it does not apply to any decision, agreement, or action by a provider or user of an interactive computer service to restrict access to or availability of material provided by another information content provider. Can you explain that and, and what that change does? Yeah, I think the best way to think about the debate over Section 230 and why it has got 
so politicized in recent years is to recognize that there's essentially two sides to the coin here. In almost any Section 230 case, there's either going to be an issue of the decision that a platform has taken to remove content or the decision a platform has taken not to remove content. And what the DOJ proposal does is it offers reform for both of these categories. So there's certain reforms that are put into place for when a platform decides to remove content, and then also what you do when a platform fails to remove certain content. It's interesting because there's kind of a political divide here. A lot of conservatives are more focused on removal of content because they have this view that internet platforms are unfairly targeting their content and removing their content. So what the DOJ proposal does is it tries to limit the immunity that platforms have when they decide to remove content. And under the CDA, there's a section called C1. And under that section, internet platforms can basically go to court and say, we have this immunity. And so your lawsuit that tries to target us for removing content should be dismissed. And the beauty of the CDA is that that particular section C1 offers a relatively quick and inexpensive way of getting lawsuits dismissed. There is a separate section of the CDA called C2, which basically provides that if a platform decides to remove certain content, it has to do that in good faith, and it can only do that in certain circumstances. What's happened over the years is that courts have, and defendants have largely not looked to section C2, the one that requires good faith to defend themselves in court. The reason they've done this is because it's much more difficult and expensive to litigate using that defense, because you have to actually establish that you acted in good faith. And so it's, it's a much lengthier process in order to avail yourself of that defense. And so as a result, what defendants have done is they've just focused on this section C1. They've gone into court. They've got cases dismissed relatively quickly. So the big shift under the DOJ proposal is that the C1 quick, efficient legal option of killing a case. And not only does it do that, but it also uh, ratchets up the requirements for what you have to show in order to establish good faith. The second thing that the proposal does is it also deals with the separate issue of the failure to remove content. So the failure to remove content, interestingly, is what it doesn't get as much attention by conservatives, but it gets a lot of attention by um, liberals and by Democrats. And part of the reason for this has been the sense that platforms have not done enough to tamp down on misinformation coming from conservatives, coming from Republicans, coming from, from President Trump, frankly. During the election, President-elect Biden complained that companies permitted all kinds of misinformation about him and his son, Hunter Biden. And so they're more concerned with what do we do when a platform fails to remove content. So the DOJ proposal also has some recommendations for that particular issue. It has certain kind of narrow carve-outs for when a platform will not be given immunity for failure to remove content. It says, you know, if, pl if platforms have certain content that supports terrorists, permits, um, you know, child sexual abuse content, uh, cyber stalking and other things like that, and they fail to remove that content, then they could be held liable. 
I'm curious now that we are potentially probably going to have a new administration in the White House, what, and also, you know, House and Senate, um, you know, what do you think that the White House, what do you think that the Biden administration will do with this proposal or even Congress for that matter? Right. I think there are, uh, the big unknown is what happens with the Senate, because if the White House and the Senate are both controlled by Democrats, then you'll probably see a much more drastic reform of CDA 230. But if, if there's a split and the Republicans control the Senate, but the Democrats control the White House, then you're probably going to see a much more narrow reform happening. I know that there is a lot of desire to introduce new regulations because there has been quite a spread of misinformation and also just to some extent, you know, the platforms do have a hard time controlling some really inappropriate content. It doesn't seem like 230 is the only way that that can happen. Do you know why there has been so much focus on 230 in particular? Well, the reason that 230 is so important is because it provides very broad immunity to platforms. Just to give you one example, Section 230 currently provides that any state law that is inconsistent with the protections 230 offers are not enforceable. So that's a pretty significant exemption. If you want to change the content moderation policies of any platform, you really do need to start with Section 230 because as it stands, it does provide such broad protections to internet platforms. And so what is your, I mean, I, it is a little bit early to tell because we don't even know the, the outcome of right. who is going to control or even, we don't know if it's going to be a split Senate or if Republicans are going to control. But I mean, do you have a sense of which way this will go in terms of how, like what law will ultimately get proposed? Right. I think what we could say is this, because we don't know who's going to control the Senate, to the extent that we can make any predictions about what's going to happen with 230, it would be to focus on what would what would actually gain bipartisan support. And if you look at what would gain bipartisan support, there have actually been a few measures that have been proposed. And what they do tend to focus on are specific categories of objectionable content. So it's content related to sex trafficking. There, there's been some proposals about child exploitation content. Uh, there was actually a bipartisan bill proposed by a bunch of Republican and Democratic senators to target that specific issue. So my guess is if you have a split where the Republicans continue to control the Senate and the Democrats control the White House, you'll get some reform of CDA 230, but it will be focused primarily on specific narrow categories of objectionable content as opposed to sweeping reform like is currently being proposed by the DOJ legislation. And just for fun, let's say, you know, Congress passes the DOJ's proposed legislation like full, full sale. What kind of impact would that have? I think it would have a pretty significant impact. And ironically, I think the biggest impact would be on smaller players as opposed to larger players. The biggest impact is that it's going to require internet platforms to put a lot more resources into moderating content, um, having structures in place to take complaints from consumers, from government entities about content on their platform. And larger players, larger tech companies, they actually have the resources to deal with that. The problem is a lot of smaller companies that benefit from CDA 230, they just don't have those resources. 
So they either shut down or they limit the kind of content that's on their platform, which is not, not necessarily good for consumers. Well, that sounds not great. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny because there's so much focus on all of the negative aspects of CDA 230, but it really is a foundational law of the internet. It really is important for allowing platforms of all kinds of sizes to be able to operate. Uh, and I think that's something that gets lost in the noise is that this is not just something that helps, you know, large corporations. It really is also important for smaller companies as well. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Well, thank you so much for joining me. This has been a great conversation and let's hope that democracy pans out. We can only hope. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Have a good one. Thank you so much. This episode of World Changing Ideas is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. A deal to get 10% off Purina Tuna Pate or a free Super Fuel size smoothie upgrade, or better yet, enjoy this loyalty coupon for a personalized desk diary. These are just some of the unsolicited emails you may have received after giving your email address away for something completely different. But Fast Company writer Jared Newman has found a way to stop all that. Welcome to the show, Jared. Thanks for having me. So what is a bind blur? How does it work? So blur is a um, free service that provides uh, a bunch of tools for privacy, but the main one that I am interested in is masked email. So essentially it's just a randomized email address that you can create and create as many of them as you want, and it will forward any email sent to that address to your real email address. So you sign up for you know, a website or you go to a website and they want your email address to send you a coupon, you give them this random email address, you still get the email in your regular inbox, and then you decide you don't want them to contact you anymore, you don't want them to even have your email address, you just get rid of this randomized. You could turn off the forwarding or you can delete the email address from Blur outright. And then they just have no way to contact you anymore. They don't even, you know, have any, any way to get in contact. How many emails can I have through Blur? I don't think there's a limit. It's funny. I've just gotten kind of obsessed with using it and I haven't run into any sort of limitation. Sometimes I end up deleting old ones just to kind of clean things up. But as far as I can tell, you can create as many as you want. That's great. I mean, previously, or like the thing that I've always done is I just have multiple email addresses, mm -hmm. one of which is just like kind of like a trash email. Address. Right. And that's the thing like, <laughs> like send my garbage. Yeah. And I, you know, I think for years I had that a lot of us had that like spam email account. And I think the problem for me at least was like, you know, then you have to check that email account and like, I don't want to check another email account. And then I forget to do it. Or if I sign up for a service, I know it's going to be a pain to like switch emails. So then I just don't end up doing it at all. I just use my real email address and so not really in, the, in a better position than you were. So I think with this, it kind of gives it less friction, makes it easy to kind of generate a fake email. And um, I end up using it a lot more. How did you find it? So I have a um, tech advice newsletter that I write called Advisorator. And uh, this was, I think in June, one of my subscribers reached out and was like, hey, have you heard of this service? Like, it's really great. And I actually hadn't and I started using it. And then I, like I said before, kind of got obsessed with like creating these fake emails. It feels like this like weird superpower that I didn't know was possible before. It's kind of satisfying too. Like, you know that a company wants your email so that they can keep sending you stuff. And you just know that you have that power to cut them off 
whenever you want. It's pretty neat. I'm kind of, are, are there not other companies that do this? I feel like there are. There are. I haven't really found one that works as well. And at least what I've seen, like a lot of them work in sort of different ways. So like there's a service called 10 minute mail that can generate fake emails. You just check the email on the site itself. It doesn't forward to your real email address. So I like that there's like a sense of permanence with this one. For instance, if I'm shopping online and I got to sign up for an account you know, I want to get like the shipping confirmation and, and order status and all that stuff. I don't necessarily want to have this separate website that discards everything. I just want the ability to to get rid of the contact after a while. Yeah, and there are services like um, Sign In with Apple has that option now, where you can generate a masked email address. Essentially, works the same way, but not every website works with Sign In with Apple and certain things like the coupon example I mentioned earlier, where you sign up for a newsletter or whatever. It's not even like a sign-in thing. That's just turning over an email address. So Blur is just kind of more versatile and easier to use to me. Isn't it crazy that we have to have technology to stop the spam from rolling in? Like, aren't there, isn't there like a law that protects us from being spammed? No. Well, so there's, no. Uh, <laughs> in, no. in, I mean, in, in the United States, there's the Can Spam Act which says that people that email or companies that email you have to include an ability to unsubscribe or opt out. But as we know, like sometimes those get buried, they're hard to find, they don't always work. So you can't necessarily trust that. Uh, we don't have anything like GDPR in Europe where it's explicit consent to email you, which really is how it should work. So this kind of restores that sense of control that you have. You know, I'm curious, is this, is this service free? It is. So it's one of those things where it's a freemium model in the sense that they have other privacy services. They do stuff like masked credit cards and masked phone numbers. So if you really want to go down that path, you can pay for those services. But like I said earlier, like I haven't run into any limits with the email service. And for me, that's sort of the main thing that I'm interested in. I guess a masked phone number could be pretty useful for some of the same reasons, but I, I'm just using the free service personally. Interesting. And so, so there's no real like risk and they're not like collecting your data and selling it to third parties sort of thing. Uh, I don't think so. I think their whole model is like trying to promote privacy <laughs> right, as opposed exactly. to like just turning we around hope. and violating it themselves. Listen, yeah. it's a tough world out there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I wouldn't be, I'm surprised by nothing anymore. You yeah, know what I mean? that's true. So obviously spam is annoying, right? But are there any more serious reasons why you'd want a masked email? Yeah, it's just for security reasons. I mean, we've all kind of been in that situation where a service that we use has a security breach or something. And it turns out that your email got leaked out, your password got leaked out, a bunch of other personal information. And then the conventional wisdom is like, oh, just reset your password and don't use the same password on other sites, which is great. But you can't really reset your email address. So this kind of gives you the equivalent of that if you had actually used this service then you would just generate a new email address or just decide you don't want to use this service anymore because they violated your security. And so you cut off the contact outright. You know, the, the risk is that if that information did get out, it would potentially open you up to phishing attempts. You know, somebody sends you an email and loops in a bunch of your other personal information and uses that to try to have you turn over more sensitive data, like your passwords or your banking account information, that kind of stuff. So just a, another way to protect yourself when those breaches happen, because they are kind of inevitable in a sense. Totally. Thanks again, Jared. Yeah, thanks, Ruth. That's it for this week. 
Fast Break was produced by Avery Miles. You can subscribe to Fast Break on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you like this show, please leave us a rating or a review. Thanks for joining us. I'm Ruth Reader.